Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, our regular listeners know that when we did our last episode, I was dragged into a territory that for me was very alien. And I'll describe it only as something like statistical research hell. I feel like I'm being set up somehow right now and I am willing to go along with it, but I don't feel like this is going to work out well for me. Well, let's just say that I am going to have my revenge today by taking us to a territory that is so far from where we were the last time that it's almost inconceivable. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I am clearly speechless. We're going to talk about a novel today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, perfect. I will get my highlighter out. Well, Jack, before you roll your eyes and, and make that little snide comment that you just made for everyone in our listening audience to hear, let me just say that the novel that we're going to be hearing about, it's called Adequate Yearly Progress by Roxana Eldon, is really, I think, one of the smartest books about education policy that I've read in a while. Uh, so you expected me to be completely unprepared for this, but the joke is on you, Jennifer, because I actually read the book in preparation for today, because after 9 p.m. I do read novels, and uh, was really struck by the way that you end up looking back on the NCLB era that we continue to live in when you are looking at it through the lens of a kind of darkly comic novel. Uh, that it kind of fits in the same way that David Foster Wallace's last book was really appropriately about the IRS. Well, Jack, I actually thought a lot about your work as I was reading Roxana Eldon's terrific novel because in some ways you work in similar ways, that you take a lens, as you just described it, and you sort of zoom in. And you say that you know if you, if you look at these issues from too far of a remove, you miss all of the kind of three-dimensional complexity that makes schools such interesting, complicated, and uh, ultimately, you know, difficult to transform spaces. And I, I totally agree with you. I just had never thought that it was important to do so from a kind of fictive comic stance. Uh, I, I think it even says on the back of the book something like, you know, this is for schools, what the office was for, uh, you know, cubicles. And I, I find that to, to be totally appropriate. Well, we've actually got Roxana Elton standing by, but before I get her on the line, um, Jack, I want to use this opportunity to trot out something that I'm not sure that that I've ever mentioned on this program before. Everyone who listens to the show knows that you are an education historian. We hear endlessly oh, about here it. Here come your credentials. Okay, <laughs> get gone. I never get to mention the fact that I have a PhD <laughs> in English. <laughs> we should rename the show something like Ask the Doctors. I feel like we, we have a right to say that. That's an excellent idea. Since we're wrapping up this season, uh, I think we'll we'll let that rest a little bit. Or we could come back to it next season with a sort of new spin on, you know, uh, it, it'll be like Dr. Oz. I feel like you and I know as much about medicine as Dr. Oz does, and we are doctors. 
It's the beginning of the school year at Bray Hill Valley High, a struggling urban high school in Texas, and I want to start out where the novel does. Teachers, many of whom we will be getting to know over the course of 320 pages, have been summoned to the auditorium for a back-to-school faculty meeting. Here's Roxana Eldon reading from the opening pages of Adequate Yearly Progress. Hernan D. Hernandez slipped in at the back of the auditorium. The back-to-school faculty meeting hadn't officially started yet, but it felt too late to walk to the front of the room to join the rest of the science department. He slid into a nearby seat, its springs sighing at the year's first interruption. A presenter from the district stood on stage, grinning at no one in particular. She was one of those heavily accessorized, well-connected former teachers who had long ago retreated to offices within the district headquarters, emerging at the beginning of each school year to give PowerPoint presentations. Behind her, a screen glowed with a picture of a beach at sunrise, hundreds of sea stars dotting the sand, all of which suggested that they were going to start with the starfish story. Hernan pulled a pen from his computer bag. The bag had spent the summer in his closet, and its reemergence was one of many reminders that summer was over. No more soccer games with his nephew, no more helping his father in the backyard or experimenting in the greenhouse of the Hernandez plant nursery. For the next 10 months, he'd spend most of his time indoors. Good morning, y'all, said the presenter. Conversation sounds dwindled as a few teachers returned the greeting. I know everyone is sleepy, but we can do better than that. I said, good morning. Roxana, welcome. As I made clear at the start of the episode, I absolutely loved Adequate Yearly Progress, and that section you just read captures why. In many ways, the novel is about the enormous gap between the messy, complex lives of these teachers and the discourse of school improvement that's swirling all around them. Bray Hill High, as we learn early on, is a school that very much needs to be improved, and its staff members are being sent forth to do that work with a little inspiration from a starfish. Tell us more. For your listeners who may not have heard it, uh, it, the idea is that there's a starfish stranded on a beach and there's this kid, it's always like a kid or some, you know, innocent person picking them up and throwing them back into the water. And a, a very cynical guy comes up to him and says, you know, there's thousands of starfish stranded on this beach and you're throwing one at a time back into the water and uh, how are you ever going to make a difference? And then the boy throws one last, you know, starfish into the water and he says, it made a difference to that one. What I've noticed about this story is that, first of all, it's not a bad story and it's not untrue as far as what we're trying to do as teachers. We do like when we've made a difference to one student. But then when you pull back the camera a little, on the context in which the starfish story is told. It's often told in like a terribly planned staff development meeting, or it's often told at you know, some emergency meeting where teachers are about to get terrible news about things that are happening to their career that actually don't in any way help them make a difference for students. 
And on top of that, uh, if you pull back the camera even farther, every teacher who's sitting in one of these meetings listening to the starfish story is also a human being and they've got their home life and their classroom challenges and they're hearing it through all those different filters. So I wanted to show that auditorium where the starfish story is being told and hopefully layer in all those things by the end of the story. You take us deep into the lives of some of the teachers at Bray Hill High, and you let us see that teaching is only ever part of who they are. It's such a refreshing alternative to the pop culture portrayals that we're used to, and I think it's a real testament to your skill as a writer that you manage to complicate even characters that the reader may think she already knows. And I'm thinking, of course, about Katie Mahoney, an eager core member of a Teach for America-like program. One of the major themes with all the characters is there's these stories that are told about teaching. So in Katie's case, you were asking about Katie. She's kind of this teacher movie character that the, um, you know, well-meaning white lady who's going to work harder than everybody else and save the kids because she believes in them more. And then you kind of see, well, you know, how, how does this Hollywood version of the story play out? When it's an actual person, you know, having a <laughs> having computer glitches when they're trying to show their kids Martin Luther King videos. <laughs> I mean, it just um, it just gets so much more nuanced than that. I, I think in general, teachers have told me um, how frustrated they are with the different kind of yes or no questions they ask, get asked about teaching where it's really not a yes or no answer. So for example, you know, do we care more about students' rights or teachers' rights? I mean, the, the average teacher doesn't even know how to begin to answer that question in a way that in a way that's going to fit in the time frame they're usually given to answer it. What makes adequate yearly progress so compelling is the collision between the complex ecosystem of this school and the comically simplistic solutions for school improvement that are being foisted upon it. It makes for a hilarious read, but you have a serious point to make as well. There's a scene early in the novel when a consultant from Change Advocacy Consulting Partners comes to meet with the principal, Dr. Barrios, to sell him on something that's finally going to fix his school, research-based best practices that work. Here's a clip of that chapter. Darren Grant of Transformational Change Advocacy Consulting Partners was still talking. Dr. Barrios nodded, his gaze drifting to the hiker's backpack that sat next to the consultant's chair. A metal water bottle dangled from the side, as if Darren planned to hike somewhere in his suit directly after the meeting. To be fair, Dr. Barrios was trying to like Darren Grant. This had taken less effort earlier in the meeting. When the younger man had seemed so earnest that Dr. Barrios almost chimed in with his own related stories. But it had quickly become clear that Darren Grant's story was not an invitation to share. Rather, it was the personal hardship segment of a tightly engineered narrative that continued with Darren Grant's acceptance into and graduation with accolades from Cornell. Which, sure, it wasn't Harvard, but it was solid Ivy League, right up there with Princeton or Yale, 
even better than those schools by most measures, according to Darren Grant. They were now in the Darren Grant's resume section of the narrative, which included two years of leading from the classroom before moving on to transformational change advocacy consulting partners. Roxana, much of the humor in the book comes from just this sort of edu jargon, the believer zone, disruptive change, research-based best practices that work, TM, but you're using the humor to make a very serious point about education policy. I wanted to tell a more complete story about what it meant to be a teacher, and that had to be told through multiple perspectives. And it had to incorporate kind of the, the stories and the jargon that's flying around as you're trying to teach. So some of, and some of the um, school reform language, for example, has a very positive sound to it. I mean, even take, let's say, no child left behind. I mean, what's the opposite? Some children left behind. So, I mean, it's very hard to argue with. Um, it's also very hard to argue with the idea that you should believe in children. I don't think any teacher actually wants to argue with that. But it gets a lot more complicated when people who are experienced and, and often trained to frame things for the media say something like, you know, the amount that children achieve directly correlates with um how much their teachers believe in them. And there's all kinds of implications for that when you're actually teaching in a classroom. And it's it's very hard for teachers, I think, to join the conversation and get that across. I'm talking to Roxana Eldon about her new novel, Adequate Yearly Progress, which I am encouraging everyone to read. Roxana, I want to ask you about Principal Barrios. He's a deeply sympathetic character in a lot of ways, but he's also the very opposite of disruptive change in action. In other words, according to the terms of the debate that the novel skewers, Barrios is part of the problem. So the, the principal, in many ways almost represents the status quo. And if you listen to any any school reform rhetoric or really anyone with a new idea, the first thing they do is say, the status quo is unacceptable. If you're willing to ex- uh, accept the status quo, you are fill in the blank. Often you would fill in the blank with something that means you're racist. Um, and it, it's just accepted that the way we do things now is unacceptable and you're supposed to take that as a given and then figure out how to make things better. Um, However, I think especially in our current political situation, uh, we're definitely seeing what happens when you make a drastic change without thinking about any of the consequences. And we're also seeing that with uh, some of the, you know, innovative companies that got involved in school reform, like Facebook, for example. Um, I think it is okay to point out the side effects of somebody's prescription. In the case of the principal, he's kind of this guy who has come up through the system. He has a lot of sympathy for his teachers. His goal is, in many ways, to make the school year as smooth for the teachers as possible. He's certainly not perfect. Um, 
but he kind of is forced into this situation early in the book where he is cast as like the Goliath character in the David and Goliath story. And um, I, I feel like this is something that can happen to someone who just kind of came up through the system and, and paid their dues and may not be doing everything perfectly, but definitely is not equipped to be in front of a news camera talking about their educational philosophy. By taking us into the lives and perspectives of the people at Bray Hill High, you end up really shining a light on just how one dimensional so much education storytelling is you were writing Adequate Yearly Progress at a time when the education reform wars were at their most intense. And I was wondering if there were real life stories that inspired you. Something where I I felt really bad for the person on the other end of this, even though they were cast as the villain, was um, years ago, Michelle Rhee, who was this celebrity superintendent, fired a principal on TV. And we really didn't see who the principal was, but his kids knew, right? And his teachers knew. And it's hard to know, you know, exactly what the situation was. But during that era, we were so, as a nation, we were so quick to say, yes, she's a hero. She fired the bad guy. And I think as people who work in a school, um, every day and get up at five 30 in the morning and are buying copy paper out of their own pocket do see that a little differently and are uncomfortable with just assuming that that's the right way to go about things. You don't shy away from what's gone really wrong at Bray Hill High. In fact, there's a teacher whom seemingly everyone agrees shouldn't be teaching. And yet here he is back for another year. I'm curious about what readers should make of this teacher who seems to be such a dud. Um, you do have this person who's pretty consistently and and really publicly and obviously a bad teacher. I mean, there, there's no way around it. Um, but at the same time, you see that it is it is kind of a difficult decision to fire somebody who's maybe has some health problems and is pretty close to retirement and you know that they're not going to be able to find another job. And so I think that there's a valid question of where are you going to draw that line and um, what do you do to make sure that workplaces don't become discriminating environments where they only want to hire 22-year-olds who are willing to work nights and weekends. And so the scene with that teacher tries to give a little bit of both sides of that issue. There's no real transformation at Bray Hill High over the course of the year that we spend there. And yet for the people who work there, this is a time of tremendous flux and change, including for young Katie Mahoney, who is in her second year of a Teach for America program called Teach Corps. We're going to hear one last clip from Adequate Yearly Progress that captures some of Katie's awakening in progress. It was all so well planned. 
Unlike the materials from district-led workshops, the TeachCore folder had no missing or misstapled pages, no obvious spelling mistakes in the handouts, nothing to distract Katie as she took notes, growing more optimistic as she wrote. This was what she had been missing. This sense of being part of a movement full of people so right, so right they needed their own set of protocols, their own words, almost their own language to express how right they were. The sense of shared rightness comforted her, carrying her along like a gentle stream. It was almost time for lunch when the facilitator closed her notebook, reminding them again that she was just the facilitator, not the boss or the expert. We're all here to be thought partners for one another, she reassured the group. So now I'd like to invite you to share out specific classroom challenges you'd like to deep dive into with the help of the thought partners in this room. Katie drew in a breath. The thought partners in the room sipped water, flipped through their stacks of student work, said nothing. My class is actually going very well, volunteered Jordan. Mine too, said the girl next to Jordan. In fact, I pretty much already do all of the stuff we've discussed. She closed the folder in front of her gently, as if to illustrate just how little she needed the information inside. An edge had crept into the air. The thought partners eyed one another like gladiators entering an arena. I'm having a problem, Katie heard herself say. I mean, a challenge? She felt the eyes in the room snap toward her. Katie, spelled K-A-Y-T-E-E, was actually one of my favorite characters. Now, you started your teaching career through Teach for America. Is there a little bit of Roxana Eldon in the character of Katie Mahoney? I'd say that there's some of me in every character. Um, the way that I've described it sometimes is putting, like, putting different sunglasses on as I'm thinking about different experiences and then filtering it through how that character would react. But at the same time, I, there are parts of me distributed through the character, through each of the characters, and also parts of many other people I know, and just some totally made-up fictional attributes. I so appreciated that you resisted the urge to make Katie one-dimensional. And in some ways, that makes your critique of the policy solutions that she brings with her to Bray Hill High much harder to dismiss. One of the things that you can especially see in Katie, but in a way is true of all of the characters, is that the closer you get to the purest form of your own ideals, the more you start to see the cracks along the seams. So Katie especially, I she's on a on a diet. She just she's a character who happens to be on a diet trying to lose weight in the book. But she's also kind of on a mental diet. So she really is not gonna allow herself to think thoughts about teaching that go against what she feels is her value system um, about teaching. And that ends up taking a tremendous amount of willpower um, 
to just kind of constantly redirect her thoughts. So she's up against that. And then she's also up against the fact that the purest form of her ideals is very hard to maintain. There's obviously a lot that's wrong with Bray Hill High. And I'm curious about what, if anything, you, Roxana Eldon, would change about this school. That is a good question. And I'm not sure that there is a lot of that in the book. And the reason that I would say there's not is because if I had any agenda in writing the book, it's almost like I want everyone else who's trying to create solutions for schools to read this book first and see all these moving parts and how they fit together and then think about their solution in that context. I feel like a lot of the people who have gotten involved with good intentions in trying to fix education are basically just choosing between two competing sound bites rather than really having knowledge of what's going on in schools. And that can be a big problem because you have no idea how those dominoes hit each other at the school level. So that that's more, I wanted to capture the dominoes knocking against each other at the school level. And then I'm not sure I do have a big fix for education. So, I mean, there are things I think are good. There are things I think are bad. And there are things that I think have consequences, but would probably be worth it. And there are things that I think sound good, but are not worth the consequences. Well, thank you, Roxana Eldon, for writing such a wonderful novel and for sharing it with us on Have You Heard? The name of the novel is Adequate Yearly Progress, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. Order it as soon as this podcast is over. Speaking of which, I'll be right back to wrap things up, and a certain co-host will be rejoining me. So, Jack... There were a couple times during that interview, which I obviously went off and did on my own. (laughs) (laughs) I I wish that our listeners could see the look on your face as you throw that audible elbow at me. Yeah, great. Yes, you did that. Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, Yes. Well, my point was that as you were listening to it just now, there were a few times where you just cracked up. And it really, I thought, was kind of a visible demonstration of how silly the discourse of school reform often is. I was really struck while reading this at the the way that just slightly changing some of the naming conventions that we have all become so used to leads to a new way of seeing. Uh, you know, I referenced at the beginning of the show David Foster Wallace, um, and I'm thinking of you know the famous graduation speech he gave where he was talking about the challenge of living as being one where uh, we are trying to recognize the water that we're swimming in, and oftentimes art gives us the ability to see that. And, uh, and I think this book is no different, where renaming something, uh, you know, the... I'm like cracking up even trying to read this. The Office for Oversight of Binders and Evidence of Implementation is like, oh my gosh, like that is that is not what anything would be called, but it's pretty close, right? Or global schoolhouse technology. Um, 
where you know thinking through how how much we accept things that are really sort of ludicrous both from the bureaucratic standpoint in terms of data binders and uh, you know mid-year assessment data chats as they are referenced in here um, and you know so-called best practices which we see all the time and hear about all the time and often don't question because they are so prevalent and when you rename them the bell ringer activity right it's just sort of laugh out loud funny and why is that because it's like oh my god I I see my reality a different way right now and it is absurd. And what what I love about the way that Roxana Eldon does that is you know she's just not just tweaking the names of things to get a laugh but to make a serious point. And so we have that great scene that she read a little bit from where the guy comes in and he's basically selling research-based best practices TM, right? Like that, when you think about the way that that is used in the real world as a conversation stopper. Right, absolutely. Well, and the fact that, you know, again, trying to see the water we swim in, the fact that, you know, we feel comfortable with third-party, for-profit companies coming in and telling educators what to do, despite the fact that they often have you know no real educating experience beyond what they have seen while advising clients. You know, when we step back and we see what is going on that has been going on for so long that it has become well accepted there's a lot of it that i think we'll look back on um, you know that future historians at least will look back on and be able to tell a story that is i think a little bit less funny but is equally dark well jack i'm so glad that we got to do something completely different this time around and feature a, a way of of talking about school reform that's both hilarious um, but also really pointed I feel like it really tapped into your skill set with this episode. <laughs> it really did tap into my skill set. Speaking of my skill set, oh, I think no. this is the time in the episode where I try to rally up people to follow us into the weeds. Um, as regular listeners know, we rely on your support to keep the podcast going and to pay our excellent producer. Um, if you go to patreon.com and search for Have You Heard?, You'll find out everything about how to support us. And you we have all kinds of cool extras like a reading list that Jack helps to come up with every episode. And the highlight is obviously when you get to hear Jack and I venture into the weeds and discuss some topic that's really fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you. I think you had everybody until really fascinating. Um, for those of you who uh, would like to show your love for the podcast in a way that is less dependent on the capitalist economy, feel free to share the podcast with uh, friends and family, to go on and give us a rating, preferably a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts, or to engage with our Twitter handle at HaveYouHeardPod. Now, Jack doesn't actually know the topic of this episode's In the Weeds. I'm springing it on him. I'm still punishing him for making making us talk, spend all that time talking about data the last time. I feel like people would pay for the Patreon subscription if they could see the gleeful look on your face right now. Like if, if we had video of uh-huh. this, that you would bring people over the paywall. Now with a video stream. So Jack, our topic this time around, it's actually a little bit of a teaser for a future episode. I'm going to try to get you to think about 
an important education story that has been missed in the past year and one that you think is maybe going to be big in the months ahead? Because I know what I'm going to say and I'm going to sound that really... That actually sounds pretty fun. I'm going to sound really smart. <laughs> and But of course, everybody will know that I only had five minutes to think about yeah, it. So I, this is like true. classic low expectations. I feel like I'm going to do really well yeah. in that environment. Yeah. So uh, if you're a Patreon subscriber, follow us into the weeds. Become a Patreon subscriber if you'd like to come into the weeds. Otherwise, we'll see you next time. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. Have you heard?